Welcome to the Irrational Discourse Podcast. This is episode three, 27 words, the Second Amendment to the U.S. Constitution. I'd like to do a few housekeeping notes uh, before we begin. First, I'm flying solo this week. The family's out of town for various purposes, and Chris is included in that. So this episode will be less of a discourse and more of a short college room lecture. It's not easy to replace Chris's dulcet tones and his abstract wit, but I'll do my best to keep it entertaining. But it is a history lecture, and not everyone finds such things as entertaining as I do. Second, I'm babysitting three fairly large dogs this week. So if you hear jinglings of collars, barking, uh, or any kind of horseplay going on in the background, I apologize in advance. Finally, if you've listened to previous episodes you'll have noticed a rather lengthy fair warning on the sensitive nature of some of the topics that we discuss in this podcast. Given that it was a lengthy and rather boring intro after hearing it once or twice, and the fact that the sensitive nature of the podcast is kind of implicit in the name, we decided just to toss it and get to the point. As a segue to that, this episode covers one of the most misunderstood and arguably one of the most inflammatory amendments of the Constitution. The latter point is often a direct result of the former. We have a long history with firearms in this country. At times, that relationship has been a healthy one. At other times, uh, not so much. The misunderstanding of the amendment and how it applies to our rights as citizens comes directly from the verbiage itself. A well-regulated militia being necessary to the security of a free state, the right of the people to keep and bear arms, shall not be infringed. The first part of the amendment, a well-regulated militia being necessary to the security of a free state, appears relatively obvious on the surface. However, there's a level of discontinuity between the first and the final section of the amendment. The right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. The commas don't help and are a frequent source of fierce debate within both the social and political spectrums. So, do we have an individual right to bear arms as we, as we wish, as would be implied in the latter half of the amendment's text? Or do we only have a collective right to bear arms to provide security for the state, which can be regulated as deemed appropriate by each state? A somewhat telling point is the fact that the original text of the Second Amendment included protections for those whose religion precluded them from serving in a militia. It was ultimately removed, but does provide a strong indication as to the original intent of the amendment. Another telling point is that the word people is mentioned around nine times in the Constitution, and all in the collective sense, while the word person or persons is mentioned more than 50 times, all in the individual sense. The Second Amendment specifically mentions people, not person or persons. Nevertheless, this is the conundrum we find ourselves in today. Re regardless of the true answer, for the first 220 years as a nation, we lived in a country that considered gun ownership to be a collective right. That is, our right to bear arms was directly tied to the interests of and could be regulated by the state in which we lived. The Second Amendment only protected the states from the federal government infringing upon the rights to regulate arms in foreign militias. However, since 2008, we now live in a country where gun ownership has been deemed an individual right as a result of the Supreme Court's ruling in District Columbia versus Heller. 
This is the stare decisis, the precedent of law established by the Supreme Court, and it will remain that way for the unforeseeable future. If and only if another case reaches the Supreme Court and is heard by another set of judges who decide that the merits of the case are worthy of overturning precedent, will such a change take place? The questions that we're going to address here boil down to basically what was the original intent of the framers of the Constitution in drafting the Second Amendment, and whether the Supreme Court got it right with Heller, or did they inadvertently bypass Article 5 of the Constitution and alter the fundamental meaning of the, men- of the amendment? In order to answer those questions, we need to have an understanding of the culture, concerns, and history of the 13 colonies prior to the amendment's ratification. This is the point where the lecture begins. A skeptical or inquisitive listener might ask, well, what makes me qualified to get the lecture on the Second Amendment, or any other part of the Constitution for that matter? I can only say that the study of late 18th century U.S. history, our framers and founding fathers, in the socio-political environment of the former British colonies has been a fairly passionate hobby of mine for about the past two decades. I decided that if I wanted to call myself a patriot, then I believe it's necessary to understand what it means to be a patriot in that context. I am not a professor or a politician. In fact, I despise political parties and the politicians that place those parties over the interest of the nation and Americans in general. Nor am I a lawyer specialized in constitutional law, nor am I a grand poobah of constitutional knowledge certified specialist. So you might say that I'm not really qualified at all, and I would be hard-pressed to disagree with you. I have a profound respect for the Constitution and the framers that drafted what I believe to be the greatest political document in the history of the world. I am far from worthy enough to compare myself to them. However, I would argue that a large percentage of the 80-plus million gun owners in America also lack suitable qualifications. From personal experience, most people who consider themselves to be part of the gun crowd have never read in full the Constitution, the Federalist Papers, Madison's Notes, or the letters of the day between the great minds of the time. That's really no surprise given the state of our public education system. And many of those look to a former president as a role model who himself professed an understanding of and a love for the Constitution, but continually attempted to breach the separation of powers, had never heard of an emolument, threatened to regulate protections for the press, speech, and citizenship, often overstated the powers granted to the president in Article 2, and once said that as president, he would protect Article 12 of the Constitution even though there are only seven articles in the U.S. Constitution. I am also not a gun lover. That term, to me, conveys an unhealthy fanaticism for a tool designed and manufactured for a singular purpose, to kill another human being. To love such a tool could arguably be indicative of a dysfunctional psychological condition. I do, however, love to shoot firearms of all types. I am a gun owner, a veteran, and I've put countless rounds downrange with M16s, AK-47s, M60s, saws, 50 caliber machine guns. I have owned AR-15s, 357s, 44s, and other weapons, and I shot them often. I did not love them. I did, however, respect them. And maybe most importantly, I'm proud to have never once 
felt the need to demonstrate my masculinity by posing for a picture for social media while holding my firearm. I also cringe every time I hear someone utter the completely incomprehensible phrase, guns don't kill people, people kill people. If you ever have the misfortune of absorbing a bullet, I am fairly confident that you would lay equal blame on both the gun and the person pulling the trigger. There is, after all, a non-binary level of responsibility for the act. Regardless of my personal beliefs or feelings on the Second Amendment, I am quite capable of seeing and respecting both sides of the argument. As a result, I suspect that my lecture will inevitably irritate both of those sides. So let's just jump to the history. In May of 1754, a young 22-year-old lieutenant colonel by the name of George Washington inadvertently started what could arguably be called the First World War. While I find the historic account of this militaristic faux pas to be highly interesting, it's irrelevant to the topic. What is relevant is the fact that it triggered a nine-year war between the British and their colonies and the French and their Native American allies. The Treaty of Paris in 1763 was a major victory for the British, but the cost to the British was enormous. Their national debt had nearly doubled during the seven years of the war. They were desperate to pay down that debt and to maintain control of trade with her colonies to maximize the revenue. For most of the previous century, Britain had maintained a hands-off approach to the American colonies. Each colony acted as its own sovereign entity, loyal to the crown, and knew far more about the activities back in the mother country than they did in the affairs of of the other colonies. Each colony was responsible for its own security and the right to bear arms was an essential component of that security. The independent colonies could not afford to purchase the arms and equipment necessary to maintain the militia, so individual colonists were responsible for their own weapons. Local powder houses were used to store ball and powder for use by the militia, but the colonists themselves would sometimes maintain their firearm, as well as a small quantity of ball and powder necessary for hunting and immediate defense. We really do need to remember that in all practical terms, the 18th century American colonies were independent domains on the frontier of a very large, hostile, and unexplored territory. Accordingly, the fundamental right to bear arms was seen as an essential right for enabling the colony to form a militia for the purpose of acting as a police force, repelling an invasion of the colony from foreign powers, defending against Native Americans, and suppressing insurrections by primarily slaves. The concept of defending against a tyrannical government didn't really fully form in the colonies until much later in the Revolution after the Townsend Acts were implemented in 1774. To generate additional revenue from the colonies immediately after the conclusion of the Seven Years' War, Britain implemented the Sugar Act of 1764. This placed import duties on non-British sugar, coffee, indigo, and other items. In the same year, Britain also passed the Currency Act, which prohibited the colonies from issuing their own currency. As I had mentioned before, Britain had historically maintained a hands-off approach. So this sudden change of interest in the affairs of the colonies angered many of the colonists who eventually tried to organize resistance uh, through actions such as non-importation protests, which almost always ultimately failed. 
However, the slogan of no taxation without representation also began around this time. What eventually rose between 1764 and 1775 with ever-increasing fervor was a philosophical dispute between the belief in Britain that they had the right to tax their colonies as they saw fit and the colonists' belief that they were independent and sovereign colonies, subordinate to the crown, yet secure from taxation unless they were properly represented in Parliament. Regardless of the resistance in the colonies, a series of of additional acts followed. The Stamp Act of 1765 was the first direct tax on the colonies, and it required certain papers such as um, legal documents, newspapers, pamphlets, to bear a stamp to prove that the tax had been paid. This was followed in 1767 by the Townsend Acts. The Townsend Acts were a series of four or five acts, um, uh, the New York Restraining Act, the Revenue Act, the Indemnity Act, uh, the Vice Admiralty Courts Act, um, that were eventually repealed, and I believe the final one was repealed around 1773-1772, but they did leave the tax on tea in place. Now, between 1767 and the repeal of that act, you had instances like the Boston Massacre, which was less of a massacre and more of a small-scale skirmish that resulted in the death of five colonists. But when they repealed the Townsend Acts and left the tea tax in place, this culminated in the Boston Tea Party in December of 1773. In response to the Boston Tea Party, Britain passed the Chorus of Acts of 1774 a few months later. These consisted of the Boston Port Act, the Massachusetts Government Act, the Administration of Justice Act, and the Quartering Act. You can see from the outrage of the colonies at the time over the perceived violations of their fundamental rights by Parliament, and later by the King himself, that it's reflected in some of the principles of the first, third, fourth, fifth, sixth, and 7th and 10th Amendments. So pretty much 70% of the Bill of Rights uh, has some origins that began between 1760-1764 all the way through the Chorus of Acts in 1774. The origins of the Second Amendment derive from the actions of Thomas Gage, who was the Commander-in-Chief of British Forces in North America, and the fact that there were 10,000 British soldiers in the colonies when the Chorus of Acts were implemented in 1774. Prior to then, British forces in the colonies had been seen as a protective force against the French as well as Native American incursions. After the Chorus of Acts, that view shifted and the British forces in the colonies were then perceived as the enforcement arm of Parliament and of a tyrannical monarch. General Gage solidified that belief when he began dispatching forces to seize stores of locally stored powder in the colonies. He knew full well that military rule simply would not be possible in the colonies if the individual colonies were able to maintain their arms and form militias. After some initial success by the British, it triggered a powder alarm in the colonies, which started to form an organized resistance by colonial militia. This ultimately culminated in Lexington and Concord in April 1775. It's really difficult on many levels to fully comprehend the fears in the mindset of the colonists in 1775. However, if you really want to conduct your own thought experiment, 
there is one modern day example that you could use as a point of reference. I do run the risk of angering a large percentage of listeners by simply mentioning it, but I, I think it's worth the risk if it helps in establishing the cognitive framework necessary for such an exercise. Shortly after the 2020 presidential election, a meeting was held between then-President Donald Trump and several of his key advisors. The topic of the meeting revolved around President Trump's loss in the election and what could be done to overturn those results. A serious and heated debate ensued over the possibility of the president declaring martial law, suspending the Constitution, suppressing the press, invalidating the results of the election, and then deploying forces to seize voting machines and ballots in order to conduct a new election under military supervision. Fortunately, nothing came of the meeting, and our republic survived the momentary insanity. However, the fact that, the, that this was even discussed in the office of a sitting president puts into some perspective what our founders must have felt when living under duress from a centralized government gone tyrannical. I, I should point out, to be fair, that while the fact that the meeting took place and the options discussed are not in dispute, there is no concrete evidence that I am aware of that the president seriously considered any of the suggestions. He did inquire on several occasions about the possibility of seizing voting machines and invalidating the election results, but fortunately, the sanity of his more rational advisors convinced him not to pursue the matter. Regardless, the occurrence is more than enough to cause grave concern in any reasonable person that studies the Constitution and or admires it. George Washington said, The establishment of our new government seemed to be the last great experiment for promoting human happiness. If any president ever did decide to take the steps discussed in the Oval Office on that day in December of 2020, it would be the end of that experiment. And it would be the transition of our democratic republic into just another destined-to-fail military dictatorship. But to get past that and to move ahead, as, as much as I enjoy talking about the war phase of the revolution, it really has little to no impact on the ideology behind the Second Amendment. So I'm going to skip over it and go straight to 1781 and the ratification of the Articles of Confederation. The Articles were the first attempt at organizing the colonies into a perpetual union, which was doomed to failure because the individual states remained independent and sovereign, and the central government really had no power to force them to comply with any of the provisions of the Articles. However, the, the Articles of Confederation, as well as most of the independent states at the time, incorporated pre-constitutional versions of the Second Amendment. From the Articles, we have, Every state shall always keep up a well-regulated militia, sufficiently armed and accounted, and shall provide and constantly have for use, in public stores, a proper quantity of arms and ammunition. And if we look at an example for uh, one of the states, we can go straight to Virginia, uh, the home to James Madison, and look at Section 13 of their Declaration of Rights. It declared that, a well-regulated militia, composed of the body of the people, trained to arms, is the proper, natural, and safe defense of a free state. Other states, such as Delaware, Maryland, North Carolina, Massachusetts, and uh, several others, had similar verbiage in their own constitutions. This carried on till the Constitutional Convention of 1787. 
And during the convention, there were two distinct factions. One were the Federalists, which supported the Constitution, and the other were the Anti-Federalists, who did not support the Constitution. For the most part, both sides recognized the weaknesses of the Articles of Confederation and the need for a new framework of government. However, having just concluded a war with the British to solidify independence, the Anti-Federalists, which included notable names such as Patrick Henry, Samuel Adams, George Mason, Richard Henry Lee, uh, and James Monroe, then they were fearful of a strong central government. One of the primary arguments against the Constitution was, for a variety of reasons, that it lacked a Bill of Rights. And one of those concerns was that the new Constitution would dramatically shift the power of controlling the military, or the militia, from the states to the federal government, and that this shift would weaken the state's ability to defend itself against various threats, including a strong federal government. During Madison's uh, campaign in 1788 for the congressional seat in Virginia, he promised that he would support a Bill of Rights for incorporation into the Constitution. Madison was always initially opposed to the concept of a Bill of Rights. He thought that it was redundant and that if the powers were not enumerated specifically to the federal government, then the federal government did not retain those powers. However, it was he recognized a concern and something that he needed to address. And unlike many politicians, he kept his promise and supported a Bill of Rights. And the first 10 amendments to the U.S. Constitution were ratified in 1791. I think in the, uh, in the mortal words of Spock, only Nixon could go to China. Uh, at the time, somebody could very well have said only Madison could push through a Bill of Rights. His verbiage for the Second Amendment closely mimics that of the Virginia Declaration of Rights, although the wording, as I mentioned previously, is one of the most awkward and confusing of any amendment. Madison could have simplified the matter entirely if he had just adopted Section 13 of Virginia's Declaration of Rights and maybe incorporated some of the wording from the First Amendment to prevent infringement by the federal government. If that had been the case then a well-regulated militia, being necessary to the security of a free state, the right of the people to keep and bear arms, shall not be infringed, could have been replaced by, Congress shall make no law prohibiting a well-regulated state militia, composed of the body of the people, trained to arms, as a proper, natural, and safe defense to a free state. However, regardless of the ambiguities, the, the final version of the Second Amendment was enough to convey the intent of the framers for the first 217 years after the ratification of the Bill of Rights. That all changed in 2008 with a 5-4 Supreme Court ruling in District of Columbia versus Heller. But I'll circle back to that in a couple minutes. I do just want to, I want to close out on the history lecture with a summary of a few of the key events that occurred between the ratification of the Bill of Rights in 1791 and Heller in 2008. Unlike the First Amendment, there are only a few landmark SCOTUS cases on the Second Amendment and the addition of one constitutional amendment to reference when examining the evolving attitudes of our nation with regard to the right to bear arms. The ratification of the 14th Amendment and its due process clause after the Civil War made the Bill of Rights applicable to state governments as well as the federal government. Personally, I think this was already obvious, but it was still a necessary move because the southern states wanted to prevent the federal government from interfering with their ability to oppress former slaves. 
Just a side note, so the, the Enforcement Acts following the 14th Amendment actually did provide some relief to African Americans in, in the South. It was, however, very short-lived, and acts of violence and intimidation once again resumed and continued pretty much unchecked in the South for more than 100 years. To get back to the Second Amendment, the amendment was different from other amendments in the Bill of Rights, as it was not intended to protect the rights of individuals, but of the states themselves. Therefore, imposing the Second Amendment at the state level would be tantamount to actually stripping from them a fundamental right that they had felt necessary during the Constitutional Convention. Regardless of the concerns, the, the collective rights doctrine for the Second Amendment was upheld in 1875 with the Supreme Court's ruling in United States versus Cruikshank. The majority opinion in that case held that the Second Amendment means no more than that it shall not be infringed by Congress and has no other effect than to restrict the power of the national government. Although Crookshank was not what you would call a moral or ethical ruling in that it allowed the states to continue resisting the imposition of the Bill of Rights, it did get it right with regard to the Second Amendment. That position was reaffirmed in United States versus Miller in 1939, where the court held, I'm paraphrasing here, that possessing a sawed-off shotgun does not have a reasonable relationship to the preservations or efficiency of a well-regulated militia and is therefore not protected by the Second Amendment. Even the National Rifle Association, which, which was founded in 1871 and is well known today as a staunch advocate of an individual right to bear arms, supported firearm regulations throughout most of its history. These views within the NRA ultimately changed in, in 1971 when the ATF uh, raided the homes of an NRA member and he was shot and paralyzed. It was shortly after that point where the NRA began to focus heavily on political issues, decided to align with the Republican Party, and adopted an ideology that the Second Amendment protected individual gun rights. The Heller case in 2008 solidified that ideology into law when they invalidated a federal law banning most civilians from possessing handguns in their homes. In the ruling, they found that the Second Amendment guarantees an individual right that is independent of service in a state militia. The Heller finding was reaffirmed two years later in McDonald versus City of Chicago, which struck down a similar handgun law by and yet again by another 5-4 decision. However, the, the limitations placed on the government by the Supreme Court in those two rulings are still in question. The, the Supreme Court has suggested that some regulations on firearms are constitutional, such as those placing restrictions on felons, the mentally ill, Bans on carrying weapons into sensitive places such as schools or government buildings uh, and on concealed carry of firearms. The restriction of commercial firearm sales and bans on weapons that are not typically possessed by law-abiding citizens for lawful purposes. Arguing over whether SCOTUS was right in their interpretation of the framers' intent for the Second Amendment is really a moot point. Only the courts have the power of judicial review, and only they can determine whether a law is constitutional. All that's really left to argue over today is, one, what constitutes a weapon that is not typically possessed by a law-abiding citizen? And two, any future law that happens to be passed by a state or the federal government that might invoke the Second Amendment. 
Personally, I think they did get it wrong in Heller, though I, I sincerely doubt that any of the five in the majority for Heller lost a moment of sleep because of my opinion. As an American and a father, I am strongly in favor of the right to maintain a firearm in my home for the defense of my family. As an American and a father, I am also concerned with the inability of the government to pass meaningful firearm regulations at the state level. Within the past week of me recording this episode, there have been roughly 17 mass shootings. And again, this really depends upon the definition of mass shootings, which varies from study to study. In this case, there have been around 17 mass shootings in the past seven days across 14 states, resulting in the deaths of 21 people and the wounding of more than 60. Handgun homicides have increased by 30% since 2006. And firearm deaths are now the leading cause in the deaths of kids under the age of 18. It's surpassed deaths caused by drug overdoses and motor vehicle accidents. And I know a lot of you out there are going to say yes, but a lot of it is suicide. And I will grant you that. But I will also tell you that as of 2020, the number of deaths from homicides in children under the age of 18 has surpassed suicides. And if children are committing that rate of suicide, I put some of that blame on the parents for not securing the handguns. America has the highest number of mass shootings in the world. We account for about 5% of the world's population, but roughly 30% of all mass shootings globally occur in the United States. If we want to reduce those numbers, some regulations are required. There is a middle ground, somewhere between a complete ban on firearms and a complete hands-off approach to firearm regulations. We just need to work together to find it. That work would likely require the moderate majority to outvoice the lunatic fringe on both sides of the issue, which is really no small ask. A complete ban on firearms is not the solution. Neither is posing for Facebook with an AR-15 while standing in front of a come-and-take-it flag while wearing a leather vest that's held together with I proudly support the police and law-abiding citizen patches. If the government does decide to come and take it, it's likely because you're no longer a law-abiding citizen and those you proudly support will be the ones coming and doing the taking. I have a level of distaste for politicians or lawyers, but I do have a high level of respect for the Supreme Court. While I may not agree with every ruling, I do abide by their decisions, as every law-abiding citizen should and is expected to do. We the people have a voice. We the people have a vote. And we the people have an obligation as citizens to educate ourselves as best as possible to utilize both. If we don't like the status quo, those are the tools at our disposal for bringing about change. If we're to carry forward Jefferson's unalienable rights of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, we must accept the laws of the land, live by them, and work together to establish and maintain a respectful and productive level of rational discourse. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Irrational Discourse Podcast. If you have questions, comments, or suggestions for future episodes, you can send us an email at debate at irrationaldiscourse.com, or you can contact us directly through our website at www.irrationaldiscourse.com. Please include your name and location if you'd like a shout out for your contribution. We only ask for 
and strive to give in return a little love, acceptance, and mutual respect.